that just want to kind of get out there and uh, get out of the way. Um, <clears throat> number one, I have a suit on. And I just want to encourage you this morning that this is, uh, okay, I see it now. All right. Um, this is not a crisis or anything I'm going through. This is just nostalgia. This is just like many of you who grew up in church wearing suits. Every now and then, I just like to put a suit on. So I encourage you to do the same if you feel that way. If not, uh, I hope that was my wife, but that was a little deep. So um, that's that. Uh, Number two, um, I will be preaching the Genesis account. Uh, As you know, sometimes when I get up, I'm speaking out of another text, but we will be continuing on this morning. So I just wanted to get those elephants out of the way and um, take it from there. So before I get right into what we're going to be um, studying this morning, uh, I wanted to just quickly remind everyone that the Art of Marriage series is going to start next week. We've got a sign-up sheet out there in the first table to the left if you walk out of the sanctuary area, then you'll see it right over there. Please feel free to sign up if you are interested. Um, Our brother Mike Rebel is the main contact. If you'd like to speak with him directly about that series, any questions you may have, um, also reach out to him. Um, But the sign-up sheet's right out there. If you'll stand with me, we're going to begin in Genesis chapter 46, verse 28. And we'll be reading down through chapter 47, verse 12. It reads, He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen, and they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, now let me die since I've seen your face and know that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and say to him, my brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds for they have been keepers of livestock and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, my father and my brothers with their livestock and their herds and all that they possessed have come, into the la- come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers, he took five men and presented them unto Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks. For the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. 
And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. And they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramesses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. Let's pray. Father, this is, this is your word. I pray, God, that we hear your word as you intended for us to understand it. I pray that you'd help me, God. I ask for your help. I need your help. That your Holy Spirit would supersede any part of me that's not like you, God, anything that does not glorify you. And I pray, God, that we hear your word, feast on your word, and rejoice in its truth. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can be seated. <clears throat> so we're approaching the end of this account in Genesis, our series. And in, in effect, we're witnessing the end of an era. This transition that we're seeing right here, I call it a transition specifically because we're going to see some details of, of what to look forward to. But this transition gives us a picture of Israel settling into a land that eases their wandering and allows them to rest. We begin in verse 28 and jump right in. It kind of seems like, hey, we're going backwards. We addressed this before, but to kind of give a picture of what it means for them to come to this land and to settle, it's important we start there. So what, what could be significant, beginning at verse 28, is that Jacob sends Judah ahead of him to meet Joseph in Goshen. It could speak to the favor that Judah now has with both Jacob and Joseph. We recall in the past parts of the series, in the past chapters that we went through, Judah could have this connection with both father and um, brother here. In effect, he's gained more trust with Jacob, offering his own life for the sake of Benjamin. And with Joseph, he's He's coming to Joseph with this plea for his family, and Joseph's heart softens towards his brother Judah. So he goes ahead of them to meet with Joseph in Goshen, just to essentially prepare the way. Now, I hope everybody's been able to follow this place, providence, promise, promise, place, providence, providence, place, promise framework. You've been hearing maybe that framework being mentioned over the course of the series. And here we, we start with, and we'll, we'll mostly stick with the place. 
Now, Goshen is a, a prosperous territory. This is the perfect place for Israel to settle at this moment in time. In fact, Goshen is the place where Israel ends up living for the next 400 plus years. This is a place, a very significant place in the history, the redemptive history of God's people being chosen in the earth. In many ways, this is the place we've been building up to because it ends up being the site of their captivity until the exodus. However, when we, we see it here in this context, this is a place of relief. It's, we're coming to Goshen. This is a place where we can actually make something and make a life for ourselves. Goshen's the first place where Israel's multiplied like never before. Before this, before this time, we, we, we see, as we've read through chapter 47 and here, Jacob lamenting to Pharaoh that he's been sojourning, he's been wandering. Their family is in a land, in a, in a specific pocket of land, relatively small. But they come to Goshen, and as we look at the years forward, they multiply like never before. They multiply so much so that the Pharaoh at that time, at the time of Moses, becomes concerned because they're, they're, they're growing outside of this territory and they're looking like a dominant force. So that's the place they're entering into right now. Providentially, the circumstances that bring them here are guided by God's sovereign hand, as we've seen as a powerful theme throughout this series. And the promise that God gave to Abraham is intact here in that God has preserved his people for prosperity. Now, last week, we observed the beautiful picture of joy and relief and reconciliation in this old, weary man, Father Israel, who's reunited with his lost son. This really old, old man who carries the weight of the promise, who carries the patriarch's blessing with him. He's coming from a place of famine and suffering and grief and mourning. And, and he's reunited with his son in this moment of elation and joy. And it's a beautiful, beautiful picture to continue to reflect on. As soon as we are removed from that moment, we enter into this conversation that seems pretty sudden and, and, and a little opportunistic that Joseph is having with his brothers. It's kind of this sharp turn that, and he's telling, he's telling his brothers, look, I'm going to go up to Pharaoh and tell him this. You need to say this. Now, we're, we're in the Old Testament and, and a lot of times it's, it's kind of hard to to parse through the, the accounts of ancient Middle Eastern area history and find ourselves there and find a way to relate to what we're actually talking about. The family structures, the, the cultural regularities just don't necessarily hit us. But if we can, we can take a moment here and see the shrewdness, the wisdom of Joseph here. Joseph has been living in Egypt 
Not just dwelling in Egypt as a citizen, but he has operated in a position of power in Egypt. He's, he's skilled in navigating the courts and, and the, the upper echelon of society and actually having direct conversation with Pharaoh himself. So he approaches his brothers with this game plan. He has the, he has the, the skill set to, to navigate the necessary diplomacy required to engage with Pharaoh. Now, I don't know if, if any of you have been in the room with an important person or a powerful person. The tension is thick. When you're talking to somebody who has the authority to make a lot of decisions and they throw that weight around, everybody is walking on pins and needles around this person. It's a very nerve-wracking thing to, to be in the room with somebody powerful. It's almost like the, the room gravitates to this person's every whim. They make a joke, the, the laughter is exaggerated. They make a command, somebody almost jumps and runs to do it. There's, there's this, this variation of, of, of <laughs> I'm trying to use a polite term, but brown-nosing to this individual. So it's not even genuine interaction. It's just this person's powerful. He has a lot of control here. So we have to respond to him this way. So Joseph is schooling his brothers on this is how you talk to this guy. I'm your brother, but you have to understand in Egypt. I understand how this works. This is the most powerful man in the most prosperous place in the entire world. So Joseph's counsel to them is not to be taken lightly and how he instructs his brothers to speak in the royal court. He will go before them as one who has favor with the highest office in Egypt. He will share specific details about their occupation to give a sense of their trade, what it would mean for Egypt to house them, and also open this door for their settlement in this land that they've come to. So they come to this land and it's not, it's, it's, it's not even established yet that this is where they're going to be. They're like, oh, this is nice. This is perfect, actually. Thanks, Joseph. And then Joseph gathers and says, okay, this is what we're going to have to do. Because this isn't technically ours yet. It's very interesting to note here. One commentator makes a comment that, that struck me. Very interesting to note that there was a time when they were contriving to get rid of him. The brothers were contriving to get rid of Joseph. They were sitting around. They had this little plot outside of what Joseph even knew. And they wanted to get rid of their brother. Now he is contriving to settle them to their satisfaction and advantage. This is rendering good for evil. It's significant to watch this contrast at work. His instruction to his brothers reminds us that providence is connected to active commands. So it could be this, Joseph, I mean, you are a leader in Egypt, so make it happen. 
I mean, you occupy this high office and this credit, you have this credibility with Pharaoh. So just give us the land. But Joseph is inviting them to participate in what they're actually going to walk into. He's not just dropping it in their lap and saying, you're blessed and go as you were. But he's inviting them to have faith and participate in that which will ultimately be their deliverance. He didn't just take care of everything. The brothers did not know what Pharaoh's response would be. They had to trust in what Joseph had done ahead of them, but they would still tremble before Pharaoh. That's the real, that gives you a real sense of what we live. We like to know everything before it happens. We like to have control of every aspect and and intricate detail of our lives. But there's just some times where you just have to trust things that you don't know how they're going to play out. This is what Joseph's asking of his brothers. So if we continue on in chapter 47 and we see the scene. And once again, the tension is thick. This is not a Pharaoh to be trifled with. We remember what he did with the cupbearer and the baker. On seemingly small offenses, they were cast away. One died and one was restored. But this is a tense moment. And the scenario plays out exactly how Joseph predicts. He goes before Pharaoh. He announces his brothers. He says, they're here. My family is here. They're shepherds. And he subtly slips in there. Oh, by the way, we're considering Goshen. He doesn't presume to approach Pharaoh and tell him this is what I want. But he slips it in there and says, oh, they're, they're kind of in Goshen right now. Pharaoh, in absolute power, responds to this and says, what do you guys do? What, 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 what do you do? What's your occupation? Five brothers stand before Pharaoh. Commentators say that these may have been the most presentable, the most attractive, the, the best looking of them. And they wisely follow Joseph's instruction. But in a, a certain twist of boldness, they, they don't just say and parrot the exact thing that Joseph tells them to say. <laughs> These brothers, they are a trip. They just flat out ask Pharaoh, can we have Goshen? I mean, like, isn't it, that's like childish. Joseph's like, do you understand what, like, where we are right now? You, there's, there's rules here. You don't just ask for stuff. I didn't even do that. And I have all the favor and you're just going to come before. This is a delicate moment. This could be the end of you. And they're just like, well, well we're just going to ask. It reminds us, it should remind us of something in our interaction with God. So they flat out ask, <laughs> Depending on your perspective, this is an act of faith or foolishness. But their ask ends up paying off. Pharaoh doesn't respond to them. He looks over to Joseph. 
He looks over to Joseph and he says, go ahead and settle them in Goshen. They can have the best of the land. See, Goshen wasn't, once again, it wasn't this humble, toss-away lot. This is a significant place. This is a significant gift that Pharaoh is giving them. It was perfect for them. It was the very best that Egypt had to offer, and Pharaoh gives this to them. Now, now this doesn't just show us that this Pharaoh is, is better than the mean guy who ends up inflicting pain on Israel. What this shows us is the favor that Joseph has garnered with this Pharaoh. He looks over to Joseph and says, give it to him. This is your family. Not only were they blessed with the land and given this, go ahead and settle, this relief passes over the room because they don't know what Pharaoh's going to do, but the relief passes over, he gives it to them. But he throws in something extra. Any of you guys who are well-bodied and able, you can work for me. You can tend my livestock. Well, I'm all right. I guess it pays to ask. I guess it pays to muster up the courage to ask when you know who goes before you. The Egyptian pharaoh here is significant because he's typically considered this evil person. But he's a picture of a father that is gracious and We see that Jacob ends up blessing him later. Further on, as we get into Exodus and we see what happens with Israel and Moses, we see Pharaoh's heart being hardened. He oppresses the people. But this this act of blessing, this this act of, of divine favor being extended, it shows that God is sovereign over the hearts of men and rulers. So what we experience and, and what we say, we, got, we garner favor with somebody powerful or important on some level. We may think that it's because of, of our go after itness or our ambition. But the favor that God gives us in blessing us through individuals who have control or who have influence. Is actually an exercise of his sovereign power. He is being blessed by Jacob, therefore being a bless, a blessing to God's people. Now we come here to the what I what I think is the, the centerpiece of this text because we, we started out with the beautiful picture of reuniting um, Joseph and Jacob in this, this awesome, just emotional scene. And now we have Jacob. The old and weary patriarch coming before Pharaoh. There's something to admire about somebody who's been through a whole host of things. And they walk in. There's no ceremony. There's just, I'm here. No matter who you're asking them to stand before or speak to, they're not quick to be amazed or overly coddle the individual 
They're confidently present. And they express an honesty that I envy. See, I I still tiptoe around things and I want to be a diplomat and I want to say things the right way. But when you get to be 130, can you imagine the honesty that will fly out your mouth? (laughs) I'm at the end of the rope here. What, What do I have left to lose? I'm going to say it before Pharaoh. I'm going to be honest in my presentation. This old and battle patriarch blessing Pharaoh is significant because he still holds the blessing from God. He's actually called Israel. And he blesses Pharaoh as a measure of mediating God's blessing to others. Genesis 12, 3 says that. In God speaking to Abraham, God says to him, I will bless those who bless you. He blesses him coming and going. So Pharaoh must have marveled at this this old man before him blessing him. And he asks, he's like, oh, so how old are you? Jacob shares his age and accompanies this information with the statement, few and evil have been the days and the years of my life. Harkens me back to, to Job 14.1. He says, man who is born of a woman is a, of a few days and full of trouble. And Jacob concisely accounts for what his life has been before Pharaoh in that brief statement. But it carries tremendous weight Jacob has endured the hardships and injury that often accompany a trickster. This old man was once a young man and he was a tricker. He was a trickster in the in the highest degree. He was always trying to get out of a result and and make a way for himself that that often lended to his own craftiness. He cheated his brother, had to run away. He tasted some of his own medicine with his uncle, his uncle Laban. His daughter Dinah was assaulted. His beloved Rachel had died. His eldest son's deceit and incest wore him down. And recently he'd just come out of grieving his favorite son's death. This is the Jacob that stands before Pharaoh at 130 years old. He carried this heavy burden all his life and he candidly conveyed this to Pharaoh. He's a wanderer, a sojourner. And if 130 years of life on this earth will grant you something, it will grant you the unadulterated freedom to tell it like it is. I remember... um, one of my favorite movies is the, the Shawshank Redemption. And Morgan Freeman in the movie was, he was a criminal. He was a murderer. He admitted it. Um, but there was this reoccurring scene where he kept going before the parole board. And he's like, hey, I think I'm ready. I'm rehabilitated. I'm ready to go back out there. And the guys are looking at him like, and it pans to the, the actual document that needs approval and they just stamp it denied happens a couple more times during the movie denied and then 
his homie just broke out in this amazing, glorious scene. He's just in prison by himself, and he sits before the parole board with the most (laughs) relaxed slouch ever. Sitting before the parole board, and like, do you think you're rehabilitated? He basically gives them this little soliloquy that sums up in saying, I don't care if you think I'm rehabilitated or not. Approved. Sends him out into the world. This is Jacob. He's like, this is me. This is who I am. This is where I've come from. I don't have anything left to prove. Whether I live or die, I I appear before you as a weary man. And you have given me an opportunity to rest. After Jacob blesses Pharaoh again and leaves, his family goes in to settle down in the best land in Egypt. There's this continued display of God giving graciously to his people more than what they need. So Goshen is part of Egypt, but it's, it's somewhat on the outskirts. So it's part of Egypt, but it's somewhat on the, the outskirts of Egypt. It's not in the midst of Egypt. There's a strategic decision to settle in this part of the country because if they're in the midst of Egypt, then they're susceptible to society and and the influences of their idolatrous culture. But they're not in the midst of Egypt. They're they're in this part of land that, that literally gives them the opportunity to continue in their occupation. So this opportunity to settle in Goshen preserves Israel for the sake of their own identity. There's a separation that's modeled here in this place where they're settling in. Israel now can be literally embodiment of in but not of. They can taste of the goodness of God and the prosperity that he's blessed this land with, but they don't have to be part of it. Kent Hughes, a pastor and commentator, says this, amidst a worldwide famine, Jacob and his sons were granted a permanent possession. In the throes of a deepening world starvation, God prospered his people. So back to the question that we've been asking over the past few months. What does this have to do with the gospel? Everything, you're dismissed. Everything to do with the gospel. Two considerations. Number one, Christ as advocate, Christ as mediator. First Timothy 2 and 5, there's one God, there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. 1 John 2 and 1, my little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Commentator says, talking about Joseph and the connection he has with Pharaoh, he says, though he was a great man, his family was comparatively despicable especially in Egypt. Although this was their condition, he owned them as his family. 
Let those that are rich and great in the world learn hence not to look, overlook or despise their poor relations. Every branch of the tree is not a top branch. But because it is a lower branch, is it therefore not of the tree? Our Lord Jesus, like Joseph here, is not ashamed to call us brethren. Joseph owned them. He advocated for them. He mediated their favor towards Pharaoh. They were received because of him. What Jesus has done, he has done for us all. He has gone before us to be the one-time sacrifice for our sins, purging our guilty stains by his blood. We sing that And oftentimes we don't realize what we're singing. We're talking about a man bleeding. We're talking about significant amounts of his life coming out of him. He's bled for us. And with that blood, he purges the stains of our sin. And then we're made co-heirs with God. In Christ, we have all spiritual blessings. We're friends of God. We are partakers of his riches. What Christ has gained, he has shared with his people. He doesn't just call us servants. He calls us friends. He brings us near. And we see this with Joseph. We see the offenders. We see what they have done to Joseph. They left him in the pit to die. He rises from the pit, ascends to the highest office in the land to advocate for them. He sits with them. He brings them close, helps them understand how to speak to the father, almost like Jesus did with his disciples and said, this is how you talk to my father. He brings us close. Let's us know we have nothing to be afraid of. He's our advocate, our mediator. Second consideration. There remains a rest for the people of God. In his address to Pharaoh, Jacob again talks about his years of sojourning. He was an old man drowning in his own grief with relatively a relatively small family in a land that was not his. And look where God takes him. Sojourning. This made me think of the language of us being sojourners and pilgrims here with no place to truly rest. There's New Testament allusions to being strangers and sojourners with, as aliens with no home. And this place is not our home. The hope in the gospel is interwoven in the complexity, the already, but not yet. There is truly a sense of the immediate blessing, the immediate joy, the immediate satisfaction of knowing Jesus here, now, presently. But there is also this sense of I cannot wait to get home. This is not our home. This fallen state that we are in is not our state So we go back to Jacob and remember his relief to see Joseph. 
He says that he can finally die, as if to die in peace. The beginning of Genesis 46, God tells Jacob that Joseph will close his eyes to give this indication that he can finally rest. And this foreshadows a rest for Israel. God is addressing Israel. He's telling him, you can close your eyes when you see Joseph. There is a rest for you. It won't be fully realized here in Egypt, but it points to the fullness of the, prophet, of the promise that is articulated in Hebrews 4 and 9, that there remains a rest for God's people. Joseph, as a Christ type, is extending himself to Israel saying, come to me, you who labor and you, or who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There's this immediate sense to this rest where we can go to Jesus now, take comfort in his words, take the sacraments to remember what he has done, sing praises and enter into communion with him in prayer. But there's also this sense of an eternal rest where Jesus invites us to remember that he will wipe away every tear. We will see him as he is. Imagine Joseph jumping off that chariot in, in full splendor. He, Jacob's never seen Joseph like this. He gave him a coat of many colors, but Joseph jumps off this chariot. He's, he's clad in clothing he's never seen. He's brilliantly radiating his, his majesty. And then Jacob looks at him and says, this is my son. And the moment of their interaction is for him to usher him into this place, place called Goshen, where he can rest. He sees his son and he can lay his hair down and he can die in peace. And we will rest in Abraham's bosom. The fulfillment of the promise, the uninterrupted fellowship with the lamb. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Chapter 11, verses 8 through 16. It reads, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of the promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. 
But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared them a city. Many of us have felt like Jacob. Many of us are feeling like Jacob. That weary traveler, burdened by our sin in this fallen world. Our hopes have been crushed. Our sorrow has been deep. And the temptations are raging. And any moment, any moment, it feels like we might shatter. At 32 years old, I can say I've been acquainted with some of this weariness. And surely there are some more mature among you that says, well, where do you get a load of 40? Where do you get a load of 50? Where do you get a load of beyond? And I'm here to tell you that there remains a rest for us all. I pray that you see that the call to come to Jesus now is an invitation, is an invitation to be with Jesus forever. I'll leave you with this. Jesus speaks in John 14, 3. He says, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. I pray we take comfort in those words. We can come to Jesus now. There's a sense where we can drink of him. We can eat and feast of him now to experience his presence now. But we also long to be with him for the rest of our lives. Heaven is not just a place, streets of gold. It's a place that is lit up literally by the son of the living God. All tribes, tongues, and language, languages, languages bow and worship at his feet. As we are here and we celebrate and we take of his goodness and joy, let's look forward to the hereafter. Let's pray. Father, you are good. Your mercy endures forever. Truth is everlasting, all generations. God, help us not to be burdened down by this life, given to that. Help us to cast our cares on you, God, because you care for us. Help us to see that it's already finished, that you have done the work. Help us to look to the finished work of the bloodstained cross, knowing that that's not where you are anymore. Help us to be filled with that reality. As we share in your sufferings, God, that we may know you in the power of your resurrection. Be with us, God. Remind us graciously that there's none like you and that we can put our hope in you. In Jesus' name, amen.